Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Stephen Starr, former director of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Professor Starr is an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, has been a board member and senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility. He's worked with the governments in support of their efforts to eliminate thousands of high-alert, launch-ready U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons. His work has been published by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the Federation of American Scientists, and many other organizations. He maintains the website nuclearfamine.org. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Professor Starr. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I've been following your work. You're doing a lot of uh, great work. And I think to start, maybe Professor Starr, is it'd be good to get your pulse on the state of the world. You know, we've got the war in Ukraine, which is a proxy war between East and West, between Russia and its allies and the US, EU and NATO. We are in de facto a nuclear World War III scenario. I continue to hear more and more forecasts by military and media from both sides discussing the inevitability of World War III, tactical mini nukes, red lines, and and so forth. Uh, I came across a clip, a clip uh, this week of famed Russian, uh, the late uh, uh, Russian politician uh, Zhirinovsky, who's made many accurate forecasts, and he predicted uh, World War III for 2024 starting in Iran. And so w w what's your assessment of where we are and, and what's going on? Well, I think he uh, summed it up pretty well, actually. Uh I've been focused on the war in Ukraine and, you know, the idea of have we are we in World War Three now or is it about to start? I guess it defines uh, it depends on how you define World War Three. It seems to me that um, the United States has been pushing to the point where, you know, U.S. NATO surveillance, U.S. satellites, AWACS planes are providing real-time targeting information to the Ukrainian uh, military forces. Uh, we've sent, I think the war would have been over there probably in, in March last year, but at that point, the U.S. and NATO made this a massive commitment to send unlimited amounts of uh, weapons, basically. Um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed since then, so I, I see that as a, a war crime in itself, really. I, uh, but... Uh, I don't know. I think we technically, if you have to define World War III as when the U.S. and Russia have uh, started direct military conflict, well, we're not there yet. But that line, you know, the fact that uh, drones were sent to strike the uh, the Engels Air Base, 370 miles inside of Russia, where the Russian strategic nuclear bombers are kept, and that happened twice, you know, and surely the information was provided to the drones on, on tracking information from the U.S., U.S. satellites. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we supplied the drones as well. So this can be considered uh, testing the uh, air defenses of Russia and their uh, military bases. And <laughs> I mean, you know, in a, in a sane world, uh, that would be considered an act of war and we wouldn't even think about it. You know, if we, we don't want to have a war with Russia. But I get the impression, and I, what I really worry is that the, the leaders in Washington are so wrapped up in their own propaganda, and they're so uninformed about the realities of nuclear war. They, I think they might think they can win a nuclear war, and I can explain that later if you like, uh, that that they have no qualms about uh, getting to the point where they put uh, American and NATO military forces in Western Ukraine because they think Russia won't dare to attack them. And, you know, that's when we're going to really, <laughs> when push might come to shove as far as the direct military conflicts concerned. So I, I don't know. I think that we, 
are if we're not in World War Three, uh, I would say that we are already. Uh, but you know, the the real the, the the shooting between the United States and Russia, their military forces hasn't started yet. And uh, we're, I'm hearing like reports. There was a clip this week, I think, from Sky News. Uh, I don't know, remember if it was a British or an American official, basically saying we need to start direct war with Russia. I mean, these people right. are crazy. And uh, yeah, um, you know, and another thought of mine. Other developments that I'm seeing now, most recently, was South Korea discussing, um, you know, uh, uh, possessing nuclear weapons with the, fl you know, the flimsy pretext of, you know, North Korea and, and, and China, while at the same time, I mean, I feel it's the U.S. egging them on because the U.S. is now attempting to create an Asian NATO, you know, Kim Jong-un and then the Chinese have come out um, and warned about this. And so we're now seeing this, you know, proliferation and uh, well, you you've been working against this proliferation but now we're saying seeing south korea saying yeah we might need to have uh nukes as well i mean w what are your thoughts on that well uh both japan and south korea could probably become a nuclear weapon states in a very short period of time uh when biden was still vice president he did an interview um that where he stated that japan quote unquote could literally become a nuclear weapon state overnight and you know why uh, japan's got uh thousands of uh pounds of plutonium that could use they could use to make tens of thousands of nuclear weapons i you know the a virtual nuclear weapon state can be defined as uh, a nation that's created all the components of the weapon but haven't assembled it yet and uh, i'm talking about japan you asked about north korea but you know, i know more i think i don't know if J south korea is in the same place as japan but I think, uh, you know, Japan passed a state secrets act. Um, it was shortly after Fukushima and that made a five year prison sentence for anyone um, publishing well, was five or 10 year prison sentence for the publishing or divulging of nuclear related information. And everyone assumed that was about Fukushima. But I think it was because uh, Japan has a clandestine nuclear weapons program. And uh, so. And, you know, just uh, Germany and Japan, if you look at their constitutions post-World War II, they're not supposed to have, you know, uh, armed forces, you know, that are going to be going into other countries or especially <laughs> if you would have thought about them developing nuclear weapons um, back then, I think that would have scared a lot of people. But it should scare people now. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what's as long as the nuclear weapons race continues and the nuclear weapon states keep nuclear weapons as a cornerstone of their arsenals, that's going to set the example for the rest of the world. Um, when I, I did work at the UN for a while as an expert witness and on uh, the effects of nuclear war, and uh, you know, some nations there consider the non-proliferation treaty as a nuclear apartheid. It gives it's okay for the five. Uh, you know, original nuclear weapon states who are also permanent members of the Security Council to uh, have nuclear arsenals, but it's not okay for other nations. And, you know, that's not going to last. Uh, and you can see that that's eroding in South Korea and Japan. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself. 
but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell degoogled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out Above Phone. Make sure to click on the Above Phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. Uh, another important issue when it comes to everything we're discussing are the removal of the different safeguards, the arms control uh, agreements. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of my professors in Geneva School of Diplomacy, Yuri Nazarkin, was a chief negotiator uh, at the start and ABM talks. We've seen the U.S., I believe under Bush and the anti-ballistic missile uh, treaty, open skies has been dissolved. And now there's talk again of the new start, the U.S. saying Russia isn't really responding to uh, you know further discussions regarding the new start. What are your thoughts on the removal, the continual removal of all of these different uh, arms control agreements? Well, the Russians describe the Americans as non-agreement capable. And, you know, that has to do with the U.S. abrogating basically every arms control agreement they've made with the Soviet Union and Russia, except for a new start. And the ABM treaty that uh, George W. Bush uh, backed us out of in 2001 or two, um, that was a cornerstone of a lot of uh, weapons treaties. And, you know, that led, um, you know, Russia was very upset by this. And, and you know, Putin in 2007 addressed this in a speech in Munich and said, you know, um, we're going to respond to this. And we, and we, and basically their response was their development of hypersonic uh, weapons that the U.S. has no, we're like, we're decades behind. We can't even feel the prototype. And the Russians are on their second, third generation of these. So that's a byproduct of uh, all the falling apart of these. But it's, it's, even the Iran agreement, you know, um, we backed out of everything that that was going to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons. But so I don't know that. And that goes and then. Then you add that to the fact that um, Merkel and Alende and Poroshenko all confessed that they had no intent of honoring the Minsk Accords. Um, you know, all that adds up to Russia saying, well, why would we negotiate with you at all, whether it's over a new start or Ukraine? Uh, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think any reasonable person, if we put our put ourselves in the shoes of the Russians, we'd feel the same way. And um, you know, just on the note of hypersonics that you brought up, uh, I've seen some pieces from the you know mainstream Western papers recently doubting uh, you know the hypersonic, the Russian hypersonic capabilities. Uh, I saw a response to that by Andrei Martyanov, who's been a guest on my podcast, the Russian American military expert and i would tend to agree with marchanov that the, the hypersonics 
do seem to be the real deal. It, you know, it would maybe be difficult for the Russians to kind of fake what they got going on with the hypersonics. I mean, y- your further thoughts on how hypersonics, well, hypersonics are-, are. They're a game changer. The first place you should look at is what how these affect uh, U.S. carrier battle groups. I mean, we have no defense against a swarm of hypersonic missiles coming at them. Absolutely none. So, uh, you know, any wartime situation. And, you know, China has borderline hypersonic anti-ship missiles, too. So uh, our big carrier battle groups are going to be as just like the Nord Stream pipeline, as Victoria Newland mentioned the other day, a, a hunk of metal sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Um <laughs> These, you know, we, we, all we see today is magical thinking in so many areas, and, and whether it's military policy or economic policy. Uh, and so, you know, you can, you, I even had a physics uh, professor <laughs> write me saying, oh, the Russians don't really have hypersonic weapons. And I'm just like, how can somebody like that even make a statement? But, um, you know, if they don't believe in them, uh, wait long enough and one will be coming through their office window one of these days. You know, I... Uh, I mean, it's the same, I've heard the same argument we mentioned earlier before the broadcast started about uh, some people say there are no such things as nuclear weapons. <laughs> and uh, I just like, well, really, what? Um, maybe you should talk to the Marshall Islanders about that, you know, that they can't go back to where they live anymore because it's still so heavily contaminated and all the uh, Kazakhstan and all these places where people suffer from the effects of it. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that was one of my points, because I'm open to a lot of things, but today things are just kind of going, um, th- there's a trend, the accelerated trend where people are discussing, you know, flat earth and then saying viruses don't exist and the nukes don't <laughs> exist. And it's like, um, I, I understand that a lot of these things we, are hype. We can print endless amounts of digital currency to solve any problem too, right? That, right. Limit to it, right? right yeah, I might get. I, I, I might. I might pick your brain on the CBDCs at the end, but um, yeah, like I, I visited. I lived in Kazakhstan for three years. I, I technically I, I was employed by Nur Sultan Nazarbayev at the Nazarbayev Intellectual School. I lived in Samay, 120 kilometers from the Polygon. You know, 18,000 square kilometer principal nuclear Soviet nuclear test site. I've 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 been there with the nuclear scientists. So, you know, I visited one of the many ground zeros because you know supposedly they dropped 500 plus bombs, and I had my Geiger counter. It was you know radioactive, and so uh, and I, I don't see why they built out all of these makeshift underground uh, metros and above ground buildings like as as models to see. I, I just kind of see it far fetched that they would go to all that length for something that was fake. No, oh, I, I think that's one thing you can. Uh dismiss the idea that there are not there's no such thing as nuclear weapons uh, i wish we could though I, mean, I wouldn't have to spend all my time worrying about it i'd much rather be working out at my orchard you know uh, or playing piano or something like that because it doesn't make for a great life to always be thinking about nuclear war honestly yeah and, and to get back to that uh then we were talking about hypersonics and uh another point is we're seeing again both sides uh discuss the use of mini nukes or tactical you know, nuclear weapons. And it seems like the West especially is is pushing out. There's talk of Putin possibly using tactical mini nukes in uh, y- Ukraine. What are your thoughts on these uh, devices? This kind of relates to the idea of what they used to describe as limited nuclear war that American war planners came up with in the 1980s uh, or escalate to de-escalate. You know, we're going to shoot off a, a low yield you know, nuclear weapon that will show the other side that they have to back off. 
Uh, and, you know, the Russians and Soviets and the Russians always laughed at this. They said, well, you know, have fun with your war games, fellas. But, um, you know, every war game that NATO fought, um, if it ever got to the point where nuclear weapons were used, they call it a fire break. That always escalated into a full scale nuclear war. I mean, and that I, I wrote um, I used to I had a colleague named Colonel Valery Yurinich, who was a colonel and he was on the. Soviet general staff for seven years, and he helped design the Russian um, nuclear communication systems. And he told me once, he said, you know, if we ever have anything like the Cuban Missile Crisis again, I don't think we're going to survive it. Because right now, you know, with our launch-ready nuclear weapons, back then they were just developing ICBMs uh, and our hyper-communications. It's just everything would happen too fast. And I've, the, as far as hypersonic weapons are concerned, you know, there's the Russians have outfitted uh, one of their frigates with those, and they're supposed to go on their subs pretty soon. Well, if you can get a sub like 100, 150 miles off the coast of the United States, you know, Washington, D.C. is like less than 100 miles from the Atlantic coast. And a, a, a Zircon missile travels at Mach 9. That's like 112 miles per second. Um, I mean, you know, I would think, well, 112 miles per minute. I'm sorry, I have that wrong. But, you know, all it takes is three or four minutes uh, for something like that to hit Washington, D.C. And if you look at how long it takes to do a threat conference, um, it's, you know, it's like you have to, NORAD has three minutes to detect the launch and report it to the um, command authorities. And then you have to contact the president and he might be given a 30 second briefing. If he issues a launch order, it takes about two minutes to issue that order and it takes about Two more minutes for the uh, ICBMs to to fire. They're called Minuteman missiles in the U.S., the land-based missiles. And those are always kept powered up and ready to launch. They always have launch crews at the consoles. So, um, But that still takes, you know, five, six minutes to, for that entire process to occur. So if you can hit Washington, D.C. or, you know, in, a, in less than that time, then there isn't even time to, to do all that. So that that creates pressure to have a preemptive strike really on both sides if they know because there's always been a fear that you know their the communication systems are vulnerable to a nuclear attack and the idea of use it or lose it you know comes into play the russians have what they call uh, it's nicknamed the dead hand system it's perimeter it's a uh, consists of a some soldiers in a buried facility 60 miles away from moscow and they are always in contact with the National Command Authority. If they detect, they think there's going to be a, a launch, they'll, they'll, they'll warn them of an impending strike. They'll, they'll warn the launch crew. And then if, if a series of things have to happen almost simultaneously, they have to have a loss of all communications with the National Command Authority. And then they also have detect nuclear detonations through um, seismic, radiologic, and optical detection systems. If all those things, and it all has to happen about the time when the uh, nuclear attack was supposed to occur. But if that happens, then the launch crew will launch emergency communication rockets that will uh, overfly any surviving Russian nuclear forces and, and issue a launch order that will require humans to launch them. So it's a semi-automated uh, device, you know, kind of like a Dr. Strangelove kind of thing. Uh, so that's all, you know, the U.S. always has four Trident subs in what they call hard alert status, where they're 
uh, in position to fire. And each one of these subs can carry 24 uh, submarine launched ballistic missiles. Those missiles can carry up to 10 warheads. You know, under New START, they're only supposed to carry maybe a maximum of three. But, you know, how do they know if they're uploading them or not, if we're not doing inspections anymore? And um, so this whole situation becomes increasingly more dangerous. And, you know, in peacetime, there's been many false warnings of attack, although they started classifying those in the U.S. in 1985 after uh, uh, a faulty computer chip in the NORAD headquarters put a training video on the main screen showing a massive ICBM attack on the United States. And they had rolled the, the lids back on the silos and they were getting the president on the phone when they finally figured out what had happened. So that's a kind of world that we don't know about, that Americans are not taught about. We don't teach it in schools anymore. My students that I have at the university, I teach a class on nuclear weapons. They don't even know the difference between an atomic bomb and a thermonuclear or hydrogen bomb. So what's... Uh, so we're in trouble, but people don't even know it. Yeah, I I, I don't know if you were referring to it. Um, the book. I haven't had time to read it yet. Uh, 1983's uh, Abel Archer, one of those. Um, I've read about that, yeah. Right. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, th- those, especially in the West, thinking they can win nuclear war. And a past guest of mine, uh, I think it was back in October, uh, Vietnam veteran Bob Moriarty, who's a semi-regular on Geopolitics and Empire, who's flown 800 plus sorties in Vietnam. He's flown under the Eiffel Tower and set records flying across the Atlantic. He's echoing the same sentiment as, as you, that some of these folks in the Pentagon or in, or in Brussels think they can win um, nuclear war. Uh, could you sort of walk us through? What yeah, well, they're I, uh, thinking? if you go back to 2006, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations published in Foreign Affairs this article called the rise of U.S. nuclear primacy by these two academics, Lieber and Press. And that basically said that the U.S. could, with a U.S. nuclear first strike, they could take out all of Russia's uh, nuclear ability to retaliate, 100%. <clears throat> well, uh, that raised a lot of uh, alarms in Russia. My friend Colonel Yurinich contacted me, wrote a rebuttal of that. But, you know, that started the thinking that uh, that was, you know, the neocons. I mean, the, the Russians look at the Council on Foreign Relations as kind of, you know, if that if they say it, then that's what the government's thinking. And and I think about nine years later, the Bolton of Atomic Scientists published an article about the new fuses on the Trident D five missiles uh, that allow the warheads to be three times more accurate than the previous uh, missiles were. So the war planners believe this gives, you know. Two Trident subs the ability to, to, with a first strike, to take out all of Russia's land-based ICBMs, and they have, you know, a large percentage of their nuclear forces are in their ICBM silos. Um, and you know, uh, so I that's what I worry about is that the the people in at the White House, Victoria Newland, Blinken, Sullivan, the neo, they're really neocons. You know, they and you, you know, all you have to do is listen to them talk. <laughs> I mean. They they seem convinced that they can threaten Russia and Russia will back down. And I think if they have in the back of their mind this basically false information that they can win a nuclear war with the first strike, then we're really in trouble. I, you know, you mentioned um, your your mentor uh, who was in the arms New Start negotiations. You, you're, uh, yeah, one of my professors, Yuri Nazarkin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I in two thousand and. 10, I believe it was, they had at the UN, they had the hearings, uh, a briefing on the New START Treaty that uh, Rose Goatmuller and Anatoly Antonov gave. Um, and I I had a pass then. Back then you could get in 
better than you can now. They don't want people like me floating around. But um, I went in to the, they gave the briefing in the main auditorium, um, the main hearing center at the UN at that point in New York. So I sat down in a seat that I think I sat behind. It said the French said France. So I think they thought I was a member of the French delegation. I raised my hand after their briefing and asked them a question. Um, I said, are you all familiar with the new period studies that predict a war, nuclear war, full scale nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia will basically wipe out most people on the planet? (laughs) And Antonov said, no, I'm not familiar with that. And uh, Goatmuller said, well, I'm not familiar with any recent studies, which meant that she had had heard of the nuclear winter studies in the 1980s, um, which were basically subject to a big smear campaign. And everybody was convinced that they were bad science, even anti-nuclear weapons people did. Uh, New studies came out in 2006 and 7 that showed that the original studies actually underestimated the uh, environmental impacts of of, uh, nuclear firestorms even with the reduced arsenals at that point, because the arsenals had gone from 70,000 weapons total in 1986 to, you know, maybe 20,000 at that time. Right now we have about 12 or 13,000 nuclear weapons on the planet and the U.S. and Russia have 90 some percent of those, probably 92, 93 percent. So at any rate, um, I just, I was kind of astounded. These, These are the people that are in charge of our our future of nuclear war and they, they don't know about nuclear winter. Um, I wrote a paper for the Federation of American scientists. that was published in 2017. I think it was called turning a blind eye towards Armageddon. Uh, U S leaders reject nuclear winter studies. And the basis of that title was a, a good friend of mine, um, Greg Mello, who works, you know, runs the Los Alamos study group and people should look at that website. Um, he he knew people that knew the people that make the decisions and they said no they they've rejected the idea of nuclear winter they think it's bad science so so that's where we are we have at least u.s leadership that uh does not believe in the peer-reviewed forecasts of uh, the long-term environmental destruction of the planet from nuclear war yeah and that sort of brings me to my next question you've been speaking a lot about this uh, as well as with uh, visuals I'll, I'll include some of those links in the description on sort of the worst case scenario and, and just to mention newland we're all familiar with newland who said f the eu and i think she's the same <laughs> kind of person who would say f the world and you know hit yeah. that shiny red um button and um, f russia yeah which would be pretty much f f the world <laughs> and um yeah I, I get that image from terminator 3 where you know skynet becomes self-aware and launches all countries nukes and you can see the map all of the you know nuclear yeah. missiles just destroying the planet and what you know what would be the the because as you said like w- we wouldn't stop at a you know just a couple tactical nukes it would just escalate to all out nuclear war and then the the effect of that and you know j- just a question because when i visited the polygon again i i went for like a day you 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 need a number of days to do a more uh you know detailed visit of the polygon out there in Kazakhstan um and I just was kind of surprised as I was driving we were driving like an hour in to the polygon and we stopped for a snack and I checked with my Geiger counter and there was no radiation until we got to ground one of the ground zeros 
And it was only for a, a small patch of land, like uh, you know, a couple of meters. It was radioactive, and I, I don't know if they if they clean that area up because I also do have that concern. How bad of an effect would the nuclear winter be, and how come you know? In my visit, apparently, it didn't seem so bad the radiation. So, if you want to just uh, talk about well, that, uh, that's a good question. You, you need to differentiate the issue of radioactive fallout from nuclear winter. The mechanism of nuclear winter is basically these gigantic firestorms are ignited by a nuclear detonation. Uh, Russia has 500 of these 800 kiloton warheads that they have ready to launch at the U.S. at any given moment. <clears throat> and each one of those warheads, I did. A, I wrote an article for the Bolton of Atomic Scientists about the effects of one of those weapons if it was detonated over New York City. And uh, it'll on a normal weather day, it will ignite fires over an area of about 150 square miles, which would be, uh, I always think in miles, but I think that's about 389 square kilometers. Um, because the a nuclear weapon is like a piece of the sun when it goes off. It's not, you know, you talk about explosive power, but it really is like a small sun being born in the atmosphere. And it ignites fires over a huge area, you know, um, simultaneously and all those fires within tens of minutes will coalesce into a gigantic mass fire and the the flames from that fire will rise up at hundreds of miles per hour which will cause winds on the periphery of the fire to rush inward at that speed enough to uproot trees and suck people into the fire zone in you know 10 or 15 minutes the air temperatures in that fire zone will be well over the boiling point of water uh, like 200 and 260 degrees Celsius or four to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So no one in that zone is going to live. That's one bomb. So if you shoot off 500 of those or, uh, and U.S. strategic nuclear weapons, they begin, their explosive powers defined as beginning at, at 100 kilotons or 100,000 tons of TNT. And they go up to over a million tons of TNT. So the U.S. and Russia have about, each have around 2,000 of strategic nuclear weapons that they can detonate within an hour or so. So the worst case scenario that I've described involves, you know, maybe three or 4,000 of those being detonated. And that produces, the scientists have predicted that a, like 150 to 180 million tons of soot and smoke would be created by these firestorms. And it would rise, it, it's heated by the sun. That was what they discovered in the studies in 2006 and seven. It's the smoke, it's black carbon soot and smoke that's heated by the sun. That It's like a solar collector. It heats up and rises above cloud level into the stratosphere where there's high winds that will cause it to circle the earth in a matter of a few weeks. And eventually it forms a global stratospheric smoke layer. And that smoke will, that smoke heats up up there. It actually gets to the boiling point of water. And that um, facilitates the destruction of the protective ozone layer. Um, but it also blocks warming sunlight from reaching the surface of the earth. and they predict 70% of the light in the northern hemisphere and 35% in the southern hemisphere would be blocked, which would, within a few weeks, create temperatures colder than they were 18,000 years ago at the height of the last ice age. Uh, would be Temperatures would be below freezing every day for up to three years in central Eurasia and central North America. So you wouldn't be able to grow crops for a decade. Uh, some people, I think, would survive, but others, most wouldn't. And land animals would be wiped out. It'd be a mass extinction event. But and notice I didn't talk about radioactivity in that. You know, that I I don't bring that up in these lectures because, you know, that <laughs> you know, why worry about radioactive fallout if we're all gonna starve death? But I I do want to address the radioactivity. Uh you know, 
One thing that's never talked about is what happens if you target nuclear power plants in wartime. We've seen a little bit of that in Ukraine with Zaporizhia, you know. The nuclear industry doesn't want to talk about that entire subject. They just say, well, this shouldn't be allowed, you know. But <laughs> there was an English lord that made a comment that if there had been nuclear reactors in Europe before World War II, nobody would be living there now. I think it was fairly accurate. Uh, if you target nuclear power plants, they have not only the radiation in the reactor core, but also the spent fuel pools where they offload their used fuel. It's changed out every once every three years or so, about a third of the reactor core. And they, they don't have long-term geologic storage for it, so they keep it on site in this tennis court size uh, pool that's 40 feet deep that's got three to five. In the U.S., like each spent fuel pool has three to five times the amount of radiation that's in the core that's in the spent fuel pool. And U.S. reactors have those pools outside primary containment. Russian reactors have it inside. But that makes it even more vulnerable to disruption. You know, to, if, the, if the fuel is not cooled um, continuously, the heat from the radiation in those fuel rods will heat the water to the point of boiling, and, and it'll boil down to the point where the tops of the rods are exposed to steam or air. And at that point, the rods will rupture, and if they're recently removed from the reactor core, they'll ignite. And there was a study that showed an area the size of, a, you know, a, like South Carolina would be made uninhabitable from a single spent fuel pool fire. So if you hit reactors with nuclear weapons, you're going to vastly increase the amount. See, a, a nuclear power plant, the reactor creates a much higher percentage of the long-lived fission products like strontium-90 and cesium-137 than a nuclear detonation does. But nuclear detonations that if the fireball touches the surface of the earth, it vaporizes. It can vaporize millions of tons of surface. And it, all that matter becomes ionized in the fireball and radioactive. So you have much higher levels of fallout if you use ground bursts, they call them, instead of air bursts or that maybe occur, say, a mile over the target. Those, those are done to maximize the blast effects because it creates a double shock wave that blow. Because war planners are always worried about hard targets. They want to destroy you know, I made my fire zone maps back way back when just to show fire, because if you're if an ordinary person, you're not really worried about if the, the building's going to be blown down. But if you're in the fire zone, you're going to die. So anyway, that's a that's a really long answer. But I, I the the issue of radioactivity will be greatly compounded if nuclear reactors are targeted. Um, and one last word on that. You don't have to use a nuclear bomb to destroy a nuclear power plant. If North Korea hit the nuclear reactors that Japan has on its east coast, uh, it, the wind would blow, the fallout, it would make Japan uninhabitable. So, you know, I, I always question the idea that nuclear power is safe and clean simply for those kind of reasons. Yeah, and you also um, mentioned sort of this idea of the sun being blocked out. And we hear, I want to get your thoughts on this idea of geoengineering and Bill Gates and people want to, you know, shoot out sulfur into the stratosphere and block out uh, the sun. And, and just, you know, go, going back to what you were saying, we would live in an ice age. I mean, at that point, we if there was this, you know, nuclear winter and all out nuclear war, you know, at least we saw global warming, uh, man-made, the th you know, man-made global warming. But what, what are your thoughts on these ideas? Well, the collateral damage from that would be most of the human race. Uh, right. So I, but you, your thoughts on them wanting to actively, uh, you know, sort of block out the sun using geo well, geo geoengineering is kind of a one of the authors of these uh, studies, Dr. Alan Roebuck at Rutgers, has written articles for the Bolton of Atomic Scientists on geoengineering, but he doesn't recommend it. You know, he he doesn't think that that's really the way to approach uh, a solution to global warming. 
You know, anytime you have a technological intervention, the bigger it is, the more side effects it has. Like when they built the Aswan Dam, well, they didn't think about what would happen to the parasitic diseases, snail fever, that would result from the, all the water back up. There's, there's all kinds of things that we don't necessarily know are going to happen. And I, and that's why like those type of experiments are best left undone, uh, including nuclear war. <laughs> we know what's going to, you know, nuclear bombs are designed to, they're the most destructive weapons we've ever created. Uh, you know, technically there's no limit to this explosive power of a nuclear weapon. And look at the Poseidon drones that Russia's uh, created and are deploying and their subs, you know, are, are you familiar with those? Uh, a little bit, but please, you know. Well, yeah, long. well, they're like 90 feet long uh, and they can travel over 100 miles per hour, you know, they, faster than any U.S. torpedoes. They can, they're powered by a nuclear reactor, nuclear engine, um, so they can have almost unlimited range. They could be sent off the coast and loiter. When Russia first uh, sort of uh, allowed information about these to escape, it was in a briefing. It was deliberate, I'm sure. You know, it showed that it had a 100 megaton warhead. Um, and I, I think that's possible. You know, the Tsar Bomba that uh, the Soviet Union detonated in 61, I think it was, it would have had an explosive power of 100 megatons, but they put uh, a jet lead jacket on it. It still was enough to, you know, it would have ignited fires over like, what, six or 7,000 square miles. I mean, that these are incredibly destructive. They're almost unimaginably destructive. So if you have, you know, a five megaton or 20 megaton or 100 megaton warhead that's on the surface of the ocean right off a uh, coastal area where there's a large city, when that detonates, it's going to create this enormous tidal wave that's like hundreds of feet tall, traveling hundreds of miles an hour. Maybe a thousand feet tall. I don't know. Uh, and they can salt those with radioactive, like cobalt, which will make the the waves highly radioactive. So it will not only completely destroy. You know, those would go inland for probably a hundred miles or so. They'll utterly destroy anything in their way, and it would make it be like the Romans salting the earth after they destroyed Carthage. You know, you wouldn't. You know, that's I, I. They've known how to do this for a long time with ships. They could sink a ship off the coast of uh, a country. And detonate it with a signal a year later from a satellite. Um, but I never wrote about that. I read about that in the 1980s. It was written by an Air Force colonel that wrote a book called No Place to Hide. But I thought, I don't even want to talk about this. This is such a nightmare. I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but I think it's a little too late for that now. So mm -hmm. that's, what we're, that's what nuclear war could wind up being if these idiots decide they want to threaten or you know, make Russia back down. <laughs> How many people in the United States can find Ukraine on a map? Yeah, I don't, Sorry, I don't, I don't, I, I don't I get worked up about this. When I talk about this stuff, it's hard not to get a little emotional and just, you know, so. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, these crazy times that we're living in. And another thing I wanted to touch on, um, this is what you've been working on lately. And uh, I rewatched I re this week a 2013 briefing by former CIA director James Woolsey, which was introduced by Dr. Peter Pry, who's been a guest on my TNT radio show last uh, year. And I think Dr. Peter Pry was heading up the EMP task force. And I've heard people talk about using, I don't know, mini nukes or something that are exploded in the sky as, as a form of like EMP blast to, to take out all of the you know electrical uh, systems. And then, you know, apart from nuclear war, what, what are your thoughts on, because there's a, lot, a little bit 
uh, bit by bit, more people discussing the threat of EMPs, whether it's from, you know, a solar flare event, like a natural event or some man-made situation. Yeah, I've been working on a paper on this for four years. It's just I'm finishing it right now, <laughs> and I hope to have it up on my website in a matter of a week or so. Uh, so electromagnetic pulse uh, it can be if it's caused at high by high altitude nuclear detonation, which is, say, about 60 miles up above the sur surface of the Earth. It, the gamma rays from that detonation rip the electrons off the air molecules and send them spinning towards the Earth at the speed of light. And in two billionths of a second, these gigantic electromagnetic fields, which will cover tens of thousands of square miles, will um, basically fry any uh, modern electronic device, integrated circuits, especially if anything's connected to the grid. Um, this whole subject has been kind of uh, dismissed because it was considered a neocon issue. <clears throat> and, but, you know, the 2008 EMP commission, it was a congressional commission, was very authoritative. You know, they used the best studies in science, uh, and they confirmed, you know, the danger of this. You know, the U.S. National Electric Grid is really fragile. It's old. And, but in order to send um, electric energy over long distances, you have to have what they call large power transformers and high-speed circuit breakers that um, at the at the plant, they step up, they, you know, they step up the voltage and transmit it, and then they step it down where the receiving end. But without this, without those large power transformers, you can't, you can't, you have no grid. And the, an EMP, the E3 component will basically by all means of scientific measurement, it will destroy the majority. One single nuclear detonation will destroy the majority of the large power transformers in the United States, like at least half of the U.S. Um, and it'll bring down the grid. And, you know, the United States imports uh, about 82% of its large power transformers. We make some in the U.S., but if the grid's knocked down, we're not going to be able to make them here. So the current uh, lead time, the waiting time to get a large power transformer manufactured overseas is 18 to 24 months. And then they they weigh between 400,000 and 800,000 pounds. <laughs> so you can't fly them by air. So they got to be shipped by sea. And then anything over 200,000 pounds is too big to be transported by rail. So they have to be sent you know very slowly across the country um and you have to take down power lines and power lights just to get them anywhere <clears throat> and this would but it would take you know a year or longer probably to get these things reinstalled so that whole time the united states would be without electricity and the, the second part of my paper has to do with the effects on the emergency power and the emergency cooling systems at nuclear power plants because um the nuclear regulatory commission has maintained for a long time that these plants are safe they're not they won't be affected by emp but you know the u.s air force the u.s air university actually uh published two papers that kind of disputed that and they even forced the air uh, nuclear regulatory commission at hearings i think in 2019 um and but the NRC is like, no, oh, it's not a problem. You know, <laughs> you can look up the 2019 Air University report on the Internet and look at Appendix 1 and see what the questions they ask. But I, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, I got about a 75 page, page paper with almost 300 footnotes that shows uh, that, that the NRC is wrong. And so if you what would happen is the, the, the reactors would be able to shut shut down. They'd have an emergency shutdown because. 
the EMP would knock out the grid. And once you lose all offsite power, the, there's going to be an emergency shutdown in a nuclear power plant. So that works. It doesn't require electricity. But after that, you know, these the reactors usually have a couple hundred thousands of gallons of water per minute going through the reactor core. The reactor core is like maybe 30 feet tall, six, 15 feet wide. Um, it's not really big. <laughs> and they're doing that. They, they can boil like 36,000 gallons of water per minute when it's operating at full power. So that's a lot of heat. So once it's shut down, there's still about 7% of heat left in the reactor core, which is a couple hundred megawatts of heat for a large commercial power plant. Well, you, the emergency cooling systems at a power plant are designed to kick in within three to 10 seconds after an emergency shutdown because they have to remove that heat or else the, the core is going to self-destruct. Well, if the emergency diesel generators and the battery banks are disabled from EMP, which I believe they will be, and then all the various components within these cooling systems, within the pump, motor-driven pumps, the motor-operated valves, the temperature and pressure sensors, and the SCADA control units that direct everything from the control room and the plant, those are all going to get fried. <laughs> and, they, and once the plant uses electric power, it's going to be operating in the dark. They won't have any communication systems. The cell phones won't work because that the grid's going to be down. So the plant operators are going to be in the dark trying to communicate with people that are someplace else on the plant trying to get it, the, the emergency diesel generators to work. The, the reactors are going to melt down. And you could have a single EMP, high-altitude electromagnetic pulse, could melt dozens of nuclear reactors down simultaneously. You know, France has over 50 nuclear reactors. And I think they, one EMP over France would probably cause most of those reactors to melt down and self-destruct. Can you imagine that? So, you know, I realize, uh, you know, and EMP, they say, oh, well, if there's going to be an EMP, there's going to be a nuclear war anyway, and nobody's going to worry about EMP. Well, how do they know that? You can, they have what they call an asymmetric response, you know. And in countries uh, that aren't happy with the United States, like, for example, the neocons point to this, but it's legitimate. North Korea's got uh, satellites that orbit, orbit, orbit over the United States every couple of days. Um, they're supposed to be communication satellites, but they've never been seen to give out any communications. <laughs> Why would they launch those, you know? Um, so, okay, well, that's my rant on EMP, but I I really am worried about that because I think, and the reason I wrote the paper is because they're actually technological devices, shielding that you can use for the large power transformers and the nuclear power plants that will protect the large power transformers, will prevent the grid from being knocked down, and will basically greatly reduce, um, if not eliminate, the threat to the nuclear power plants from EMP. But they yeah. don't want to spend money. We can spend, you know, $120 billion to Ukraine. We can send that, but we won't spend 10 or $30 billion to protect all the U.S. natural national infrastructure from EMP. Yeah, that's absurd. And um, yeah, that would be almost uh, as bad a scenario as uh, thermonuclear war. I mean, we'd be brought back basically to, you know, medieval times to Mad Max scenario. I, I've had guests in the past, like Brandon Weikart, who's written a great book on uh, space war, talk about some of these issues like these uh, satellites you just mentioned from North Korea or other countries that are floating about that could be disguised EMP weapons. Any, any quick thought on this this whole hubbub of, of this chi China spy balloon floating across the U.S.? Any thoughts well, on that? You know, uh, uh, Major David Stuckenberg wrote a report that included a high-altitude weather balloon as a, a means to deliver a nuclear weapon to a point. Because, you know, it's not like hitting a, a 
a missile silo, you don't have to be highly accurate. You just have to get it at basically at the right altitude in a general geographic region to detonate. Uh, I don't know. You know, I you can use a Scud missile uh, launched off the deck of a freighter off the coast of the U.S. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do this. And there's, you know, with more than 12,000 nuclear weapons in the world, if it only takes one to knock out the grid at this point, if, they, if they're too stupid to protect the large power transformers, then, you know, I mean, it's... I, I, I don't know. It's like, a, again, it's all magical thinking, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I'm astounded by all this, you know, but I, and I, maybe I'm naive. You know, I always had this Mr. Smith goes to Washington idea that if I could just warn people about all this, I gave a talk to the first committee at the UN in 2010, and I showed, you know, some of the images I have in my videos that are posted about the effects of, you know, long-term environmental consequences of nuclear war. I do think that the non-nuclear weapon states uh, took this to heart. You know, we they did pass a treaty to prohibit uh, nuclear weapons, a ban treaty, because the non-nuclear weapon states kind of woke up to the fact that their populations are just as much at risk from a, a U.S.-Russia-China nuclear war as anybody else. Um, so it's only the the brainwashed people in charge and, and inhabiting the countries that have the nuclear weapons that, that aren't worried about it. Well, How do we so, get through that? You know, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, some of them have uh, those elites, neocons, whoever, they've got, you know, bunkers and, you know, they think maybe after a while they'll, they'll be okay. And I can't even imagine, as you said, in the non-nuclear states, the chain reactions, I mean, from the economic collapse to, uh, I mean, that alone would impoverish uh, and kill. And, and, just, and We won't be able to grow food crops for many, many years. And right now the World Grain Reserves have enough grain to feed the people for a few months. But, you know, even the, the scientists did a study on a nuclear war between India and Pakistan that had 100 atomic bombs detonated, a total of 100 atomic bombs detonated in the large cities of India and Pakistan. At the time they did a study, they sort of, people made fun of it because, well, that's, uh, they, they, that's about how many weapons they have. Well, now that's about a third of the weapons they have because they have a nuclear arms race going on there, too. But they found that it would put five to seven million tons of soot and smoke in the stratosphere. And that would be enough to block about seven to 10 percent of the sunlight. It would create the coldest average weather conditions in the last 1000 years. Uh, You know, that would be twice as cold as the year without summer in 1816 that followed the Mount Tambura volcanic eruption. And that in that year, they had snows in New England and the United States every month of the summer of the year. So. And there was famine in Europe. There wasn't here because we had, you know, population spread out over a continent. But so that's that's a, a war with 100 atomic bombs. You know, uh, that was actually of more interest at the United Nations when I was talking there, because people had just gotten used to the idea of the U.S. and Russian arsenals. It's like, well, everybody knows nuclear weapons are dangerous and there's not going to be U.S.-Russian nuclear war. Well, I'm not sure if they would say the same thing about that right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's um, unbelievable. And, you know, given everything that we talked about, I always tend to ask my guests, you know, well, solutions, what do we do? I guess what you're doing, raising hell about the nuclear issue as well as the EMP, uh, you know, any further thoughts on what do we do about all of this? Well, there needs to be a lot of pressure to keep the United States um, out of Ukraine. Don't send our troops to Western Ukraine. Um, But don't, you know, we don't if we're not going to win a war with China either. Uh, they they have a few hundred nuclear weapons, so maybe they consider that a better first strike target. But 
<laughs> the the ICBMs that China does have, they can they have multi megaton warheads on them that will ignite seven eight hundred square miles instantly. Uh, we we want one of those landing in your neighborhood, you know. I um, and I I keep thinking, how could we win a trade war against a country that we rely on for all our pharmaceutical products? If you you know, I live in a red state. You know, we have Walmart here. Like seventy to eighty percent of the stuff in Walmart comes from China. Again, it's like, what kind of thought process is going on? And, you know, and think about what we could do with this money. You know, we have so many problems with human needs that are unmet and infrastructure that's crumbling. And all these idiots can think about is spending more and more money on war and war. It's just like they're hypnotized. I'd say turn off your damn TV. Don't listen to MSM anymore. If you, because all we get now is propaganda. And I, you know, I think. Even the war narrative on Ukraine is starting to crumble because the Ukrainian army is about ready to collapse. You wouldn't hear that. You don't hear that on CNN, I don't think. But what what happens when it does? We just declare victory and leave, I guess. I I don't know. But uh, if you are, you have to go beyond mainstream media to get your information these days. You cannot rely. The, the, The biggest problem I have with people that are former colleagues that won't talk to me anymore (laughs) It's because they get all their information from the New York Times. They believe it. It's all true. If it's there, it's got to be true. Well, maybe uh, it was half true 20 years ago, but, you know, it's, of course, it's not all untrue. But, you know, the the problem is they, they, they deliberately create these false narratives that are really like very sophisticated psyops. And if you have enough of those in your head, you have your worldview is so skewed that you have, really have no idea what's going on. So that's why. Shows like yours are really important, even if they get banned from YouTube or whatever. You know, PayPal won't help you anymore, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, is, that, is that reflective of a free and democratic society? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I've had that same experience. I mean, I used to teach at the top school here in, in Mexico. Uh, by the one, but by the way, the only university uh, in all of Latin America officially invited to the World Economic uh, Forum most recently, but. Um, and I've had the same approach with people in, you know, people that I knew in that area, in the academia oh. university, and they, they just, fin- they they live in a completely alternate reality. And what you mentioned about PayPal, I mean, I mean, like, I still can't believe that less than a year ago, the Department of Homeland Security banned me from PayPal, which means that I am having just little old me, I'm, I'm having oh. enough of an effect that I'm deemed, uh, you know, sh- shut off the spigots to this guy, which is pretty crazy, but, um, <laughs> Any any then uh, final thought? Uh, the fact that the Department of Homeland Security can dictate what PayPal does tells you a lot about what's going on. You know, these are not free, independent corporate entities that are working to distribute information to educate and inform the American and the world public. Are <laughs> far from it, and that's the problem. You know, everything has become. You know, I. If you look what's happening in Germany, they, they it's a three-year, you know, the Alina Lip. I mean, they what did they censor to three years in prison for even reporting what was happening in Donbass? Well, they shut up her account. And her, 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 her parents' account. They, they shut off Alina Lip's parents' bank accounts. So it has nothing to do with anything. I watched one of her videos, and it was, she goes, look at what's happening. You know, she was equating, you know, the Russians and that with the Jews, you know, if you use the words interchangeably, it's, you know, it's, it's all, Russophobia is racism. And that's what these woke people in the United States and the West need to understand. They're, they are entirely racist with they condemn an entire people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And anyway, I don't know. I, 
that's what I would, that's what I try to tell people when they start telling me about the evil Russians. I'm like, what are you saying? You know, are you talking about the evil Negroes and the evil Jews or the evil Russians? I mean, get with it, you know, wake up. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I keep, I, I've been saying for the last couple of years, I mean, even when I was teaching history a decade ago that we're coming up on another, another 1930s moment, you know, like, a economic collapse tyranny rising uh you know world war three scenario and it looks like you know again we're, we're headed in that direction and um i'll include all of your links in the description but if you want to let us know you know where, where are the best places best website what websites that you have or, or projects that we can well, follow. you mentioned i have a nuclear and uh you know it's not perfect but you can get a lot of information about the effects of nuclear war there I am going to post my EMP article on there pretty soon, and I'm going to send it to a few other people. Um, I've created an executive summary on that, so you don't have to read the whole thing. <laughs> but I made the I made the text go into great detail about this because I'm I'm quite sure that it's going to be uh, belittled by you know the powers that be that don't want to spend the money to protect the large power transformers and nuclear reactors <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> But um, yeah, so we'll keep up the good work. I, I really appreciate the fact that you invited me here. And um, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think we could stop it. I mean, if I didn't, if I had given up hope, I wouldn't, I'd just be out in the yard right now working. <laughs> but well, I, I, I mean, there's so many, the earth is a beautiful place. You know, there's so many wonderful living things. And besides our children, I mean, and, you know, all these other creatures, they could care less about the arguments of humans, but we're going to wipe them out along with ourselves if we have this damn nuclear war we got to we got to turn around from this and start de- devoting our intelligence and our resources to to improving the lot of humanity and the rest of the world yeah i wouldn't be doing this podcast uh, either as you said if i didn't think uh, we could change uh, some things and i guess what, what, when you don't see the podcast anymore i've i've escaped to the jungles of Ch- <laughs> Ch- Ch- chapas or something and so anyways th- thank you uh, professor star for being on geopolitics yeah, empire you. take care I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.